Isaiah 27, verse 1. In that day, the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day, sing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, do keep it. I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. Fury is not in me. Who would set the briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. He shall cause them, the come of, the, of Jacob, to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the earth with fruit. Notice in verse 6, we see the root. In verse 8, we see the shoot. And in verse 6 again, we see the fruit. This morning I want to preach a message entitled, The Root, The Shoot, and The Fruit. Father, bless your word today. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for a chapter of scripture that speaks so wonderfully about God's love for his people, your love for Israel. And Lord, in this dispensation we live in, your love for the local New Testament church. Thank you for loving Heritage Baptist Church for 21 years. Thank you, God, for just the sovereign ways in which, Lord, even before we knew what would happen, Lord, you had all things orchestrated. As reminded my Bible reading this morning, God, how God knows all things. Thank you that, Lord, you're all-knowing. Thank you, Lord, that you're all-powerful. Thank you that, Lord, you're everywhere at one time. Thank you, God, that you are God and God alone. And this morning, come down upon this parking lot at 2950 Merced Street. Thank you for the owners of this parking lot. Thank you for their graciousness and allowing us to rent this space. And how, at a critical moment of time, it's been very helpful for us for our driving services. And God, for many of our people to be sitting here, some have already been sitting here for about 30 minutes, and uh, Lord, they'll be sitting here and just, just persevering through the service. God, I pray that you bring us into your presence. The Bible says that the Apostle John was in the presence of the Lord on the Lord's Day, and we need that today. We need the Holy Spirit of God to make his presence known. We thank you he lives inside of us. But we pray this morning that his ministry of being our comforter and reproving of sin, righteousness, and judgment would be very evident in our lives. Give understanding and dare our hearts to you. We pray for truths that we've visited before and have studied before just to come alive to us and be revived. We pray for truths perhaps we've yet to study and spend time on that they would just be very refreshing in our hearts. We pray for victory that you'll give in every heart. And we pray that this morning when we leave the parking lot, we can say that God was glorified and Jesus Christ, your son, has been lifted up. Bless us, we pray now in this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this morning, we are in chapter 27 of Isaiah. And you'll notice in chapter 26 and 27, actually starting with 25, we have been actually uh, looking, getting a glimpse into the millennial period. It starts off by saying, in that day. It's talking about the millennium, the 1,000-year reign. That is peace on earth. That is a time of unprecedented peace and goodwill towards men. It is a time of blessedness. It is a time when Jesus rules the nations with a rod of iron. That's a wonderful thing there. It's a perfect world with, perfect, with a perfect ruler, perfect standards, perfect uh, weather, perfect life, everything there. And we are privileged to serve alongside of our Savior as kings and priests. You'll notice here that we 
that it starts off in chapter 27, verse 1, by, by Mitch, or chapter 7, 27, verse 2, it says, In that day sing ye unto her. Now, last week we saw the Lord sing, we saw God's people singing to God. It says in chapter 26, verse 1, In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. Now, I'm thankful that even though right now that our health department is telling us, uh, you know, they really want to restrict singing because of the potential spread of the coronavirus and so forth like that. And we, we understand that. At the same time, we realize singing is an expression of our heart. We sing to express our feelings, our endearment, our love. And there's just something about music, no matter whether you're musically inclined or not, there just gets to be a little bit of a humming that you do and a singing that you enjoy. In chapter 26, we see God's people, that's you and me, singing to the Lord. But chapter 27, it's very interesting, it's God singing to us, and that's a blessing. It says here, in that day, sing ye under. That's God singing to us. In this chapter, we see the passionate singing of our Lord to his people. He uses the picture of a vineyard, which I'll talk about in a minute. God is singing to us. We see passionate singing. But we see a powerful symbolism in chapter 27. When you study the Bible, you notice that there are a lot of what we call types that are used. We call these, if you would, symbols. Symbols are pictures that give meaning, uh, that give more meaning or more powerful meaning or more colorful meaning to a truth or principle. Jesus used the parables to help us understand Bible truth. You'll notice that we find in chapter 27, we find many, many signs and symbols that God gives to us. We have the symbol, if you would, of a vineyard. We have, the vineyard, we have the symbol of a root. We have the symbol of a shoot. We have the symbol of blossoming. We have the symbol, if you would, of rivers. We have the symbol here of a dragon. I mean, there's many symbols that we see here today, but the ones I want you to notice this morning are found in verses, verses 2 through 11, where God talks about the root, the shoot, and the fruit. And so this morning, I want you to join me as we visit three very powerful and meaningful truths that will help you and I to grow in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And every now and then, if you feel inclined, go ahead and honk the horn to say amen. That's fine. Just don't do it too long or too, too noisily to disrupt our neighbors. But go ahead if you feel inclined to do so. Notice number one in verse one, we see the Lord who's victorious. We see the Lord in his victory. Chapter 27, verse one, talks about a future point of time, about the enemy of God's people. It says, in that day, the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall pierce Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now, in verse 1, we see the symbol called Leviathan, or the dragon, or the serpent. Now, as we consider the serpent this morning, we, we think about where the dragon, who synonymously means a serpent, we notice here it's talking about Satan. We know that the serpent is found, first of all, in Genesis chapter 3. Satan represented himself as a serpent. The Bible describes him as a crooked and a piercing serpent. Crooked in the sense and the curvature by which he moves, symbolically speaking about his deceptiveness. He's subtle. He's an angel of light. He goes about seeking who he may deceive and who he can devour. It speaks about the fact that he's a piercing servant, that as a serpent he seeks to sink his fangs into whoever he can. He seeks to devour. The Bible uses the image of a lion, a roaring lion, to speak about Satan. And it talks about the fact in chapter 27 that as a dragon, and we'll see more about that tonight in Revelation 12, but as a dragon and as a serpent, he's the of God's people. The idea of a dragon is a terrible beast.
or monster who seeks to destroy. Anything associated with a dragon speaks to us about deceit, devastation, and death. There's no such thing. Any fairy tales, any movies, any books that, that glorify dragons are in fact glorifying demonology. Mothers and da dads, I encourage you to be very uh, scrupulous in watching over what your children read and what they're given in school because anything having to do with, with dragons is, a, is, is basically is giving glory to Satan and not to God. And you want to be very, very careful of that. There's no such thing as good dragons. And the Bible speaks about the fact that Satan is a dragon. In fact, in Revelation 12, he's called a red dragon, and he's a fierce dragon, and he's a fiery dragon, and he's a dragon that seeks to destroy. But in this verse, we're not magnifying the dragon. Praise God. We're magnifying our Savior, Jesus Christ. In verse 1, it says, The Lord in that day, with his sore and great and strong sword, shall punish Leviathan. Thank God this morning, Satan is a defeated foe. He's the defeated foe because our Lord reigns over him. Thank God, as we said several weeks ago, that the believer can rejoice that Satan was defeated at the cross. 1 John 3, 8 says, He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Satan is defeated at the cross. But listen, we can rejoice this morning. Satan was defeated at your conversion. The day you got saved, Satan was defeated when you believed on Jesus Christ as Savior. 1 John 4, 4 says, You are of God, little children. And have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He was defeated at the cross. He was defeated at our conversion. But thank God he'll be, he'll be defeated at the conclusion of all things. We read over in Revelation chapter 20 that, that uh, the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. The Lord, who is victorious, God is greater than Satan. Satan is not greater than God. We'll see in our scriptures tonight how Satan is cast out of heaven. Jesus reigns. Thank God today we read here that the Lord in that day, with his sword and great and strong sword, shall punish Leviathan. You know, this morning, we're in a spiritual warfare. The Bible says that we're in a warfare. We're in a battle. The battle commenced the moment you were born in this world. It intensified and got notched up many, many times over that the moment you got saved. Satan hates the fact that you're saved. In fact, before you got saved, Satan tried to do everything he could to keep you from getting saved. Many of us here in this parking lot are watching my live stream. In fact, all of us have family members and friends who are not saved. And that grieves our heart. That burdens our soul. I want to remind you this morning, Satan is doing everything he can to blind them, to deceive them, to harden them, and to keep them from trusting Christ as Savior. But as Christians, I remind you today, because Satan is the defeated foe, the Bible tells us that we have weapons that God has given us. He's given us sufficient weapons, adequate weapons, powerful weapons against Satan. The Bible says, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness in this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And so the Bible tells us that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but praise God, mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds. Thank God for that this morning. We see here in verse 1, we have the weapon of the Word of God. We read over Revelation chapter 12, we have the weapon of the blood of Christ. We are covered by the blood of Christ. 
We thank God that the preaching of the gospel, the word of our testimony, is a weapon against the devil. We thank God this morning that faith is a weapon, the shield of faith. We thank God today your salvation, the helm of salvation, is a weapon. We thank God today that truth is a weapon. We thank God that the breastplate of righteousness, righteousness is a weapon. We thank God this morning soul winning and witnessing is a weapon. We thank God this morning that prayer is a weapon. You see today, God has given us a manifold number of, of weapons to fight against the devil. You don't go into warfare unarmed, and you don't go into warfare uh, someone that's weak and will be cast down. Thank God and give God the glory this morning that we have a Lord who's victorious, that he's equipped you and equipped me so we can do battle and win against that arch foe known as Satan today. Even right now through the preaching of God's word, the great sword of the Lord, he calls it in verse 1, the sore and great and strong sword. He cannot withstand it. Satan hates the preaching of God's word. Satan hates it when the doors of a church are open. Satan hates it when there's open-air preaching. Satan hates any form by which the word of God is given out. I'm reminded Charles Spurgeon said, The preaching of Christ is the whip that flogs the devil. The preaching of Christ is the thunderbolt, the sound of which makes all of hell to shake. Number one today, we can rejoice. We see the Lord is victory. But notice in verses 2 to 11, we see a second thing. A second thing that drives home into our hearts, the love of God for you and me. Now, this week you've been discouraged. You came today discouraged. You're wondering kind of what's going to happen tomorrow. I want to remind you today, God loves you. Amen? God loves you. And God loves you with an everlasting love. It's an inseparable love. He loves us to the end. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And we see this love in verses 2 to 11. We see number two, the Lord and his vineyard. The Lord uses the image of a vineyard in verse two. When I think about a vineyard, I think about the Jews back in that day. The greatest prize of land ownership was being able to own and to plant and own and nurture a vineyard. People would stop and look at those rows of grapevines growing. And they respect it, and they look forward to fellowshipping around the vineyard. I found that people that love gardening, we have quite a few people in our church that love gardening. I found that gardening is not part-time work. I found that gardening is full-time work. People that really love gardening, especially many I know in our church, they put extreme amounts of time into it. They give, they give carefulness to watering. They make sure that the ground is very soft and fertile. And if you live here in the Bay Area, you know that our, our topsoil is very clayish. And so you have to dig down and then you have to add some, some fertile topsoil on it so your plants could grow. And they give detailed attention to digging deep and adding the topsoil, of covering it where it needs covering, of watering it, of pruning it. They do all of these things that are pertinent to, to gardening. And we see this morning in the sub, subject of the, the Lord's vineyard, we see the Lord and his love for his people. We see how God, we are representing his vineyards that God loves. Notice, first of all, the premium of the vineyard. The Bible says in verse 2, In that day, singing under a vineyard of red wine. Several, a couple years ago, I preached a very, very long sermon about the Bible and wine. 
If you weren't there, you might want to go back in our podcast archives to understand what does the Bible say about wine. Now, we believe, I'm just going to state this right up front, in fact, chapter 28 addresses it. We do not believe that Christians, God's people, should drink alcohol. We believe that, God, that Jesus Christ uh, did not drink alcohol. Uh, alcohol is, is basically is, is, is grape juice that's been fermented. Uh, you know, an additive has been added to it. Yeast has been added to it, and it causes it to ferment, become corruptible, and so forth. And, and you might want to go back and preach a look at that. But what I said in that message is that many, many times in the Old and New Testament, the, the word that's used for wine is also the same word that's talked about, that speaks about grapes and the fresh fruit of the vine that's plucked off, off of there, the grapes. And what he's talking about here, a vineyard of red wine, he's speaking about uh, the lushness and the wonderfulness of freshly gra- uh, squeezed grapes where it's been picked, it's been taken to a vat, it's been crushed, it's been squeezed, it's given off, the, it's given off its fruit, and there's some sediment with it, which we call the lees, and, and people loved, enjoy drinking that. It's refreshing to them. Uh, there's just something about freshly squeezed juice that, uh, juice that is just very, very encouraging to you. And God uses this to express his, his love for his people. He calls it the premium. God, it's talking about here when he says a vineyard of red wine. He's basically saying here that God looks at you and me. And he sees you and I as his people, as people that he loves. And we're premium to him. We're not his second best. We are his best. We are his prime choice. He loves us. He cares for us. He knows every detail about our life. And when we think about that, it encourages us this morning to know that the Lord loves his people very, very much. We are his premium there, that God looks at us. In fact, the Bible says in Judges 9, 13, wine which cheereth God and man. You see this morning, whether you're a new believer or seasoned believer, God always looks at us and sees potential. He's looking for the best to come out of us. He knows that we can do more. He knows that he can do more with us. That's why he's left us here. He knows there's more potential and opportunity for him to touch our lives. A vineyard of red wine speaks about the premium relationship we have with the Lord. And so he sings to us, a vineyard of red wine is my people. We see the premium of the vineyard. But notice, secondly, the planting of the vineyard. Now, God looks at this vineyard, and we have to consider some things. In chapter 5 of Isaiah... We spent some time there a few weeks ago where we saw that God took a landscape and cleared the rocks off, prepared the soil, he broke up the soil, and he tenderly and cautiously, he started to plant those vines. And as he did so, he planted a wall around it. He put a wall around it to protect it from predators that would nibble at it. But we saw that the, the vineyard in that, in, that, in that illustration there did not give off good fruit. In fact, he said he gave off wild grapes. It was like grapes that grow in the wilderness. They were sour. They were bitter. They were not good for consumption. And so he talked about the relationship God's people had with him at that time, that they were, they were planted by God, but they weren't giving off the right fruit. In chapter 27, God's speaking about his people giving off good fruit. He's talking about this planting. Notice, first of all, in verse 6, the planting begins by establishing a root. He clears out the ground, and then he plants the root in the ground. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, And he shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Now, before you can have a plant that's healthy, it's got to get its roots down deep. It's got to get the roots very, very deeply into the ground. It's got to get in deep so that it can draw the nutrients out of the ground and get more moisture out of the ground, and so that way it can shoot upwards. The Bible says that we need to take root downwards in order to bear good fruit. The Bible says in Psalms 80, verse 9, we're to take deep root. The deeper the root, 
the greater the fruit. Colossians 2.7 speaks to us in terms of our application of that. We're to be rooted and built up in Jesus Christ. You see, this morning, in our Christian lives, the deeper our root, the greater the fruit. We need to get our roots deep into God's Word. We need to get our roots deep into our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to get our roots deep in the church. Looking forward to Sunday morning, June 28th, when we start resuming our Sunday morning services, 1 at 8.30, 1 at 10 o'clock, 1 at 11.30. Each of those services are opportunities for us to come back and say, God, forgive us for taking for granted church. And Lord, I never want to take church for granted again. And when we come back, we ought to determine we're going to be better members than we ever were before. We're going to get our roots deep into God's Word. And we're going to get our roots deep into the church. And we're going to get our roots deep into Christian living. And watch what God is able to do. We've got to get our roots deep into the things of God. And so God wanted a premium vineyard. To get a premium vineyard, He had to get the roots down. The planning, if you would, for roots getting out there. And then notice, secondly, we see the productivity. Thirdly, notice the productivity of this vineyard. He planted the roots. Then notice in verse 8, verses 6 and 8, it starts to blossom and bud. A vine shoots off branches. Now Jesus Christ is the vine. God the Father is the vine dresser or the husbandman. We are the branches or the shoots. The branches that come out are called shoots. God said in verse 6, Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Now, when you read later on, you go back down further in verse 3, notice verse 3. The Lord says of his loving care for his vineyard, I, the Lord, do keep it. He didn't assign it out to someone else. Now, thank God for pastors and Bible-believing churches that care for the souls of their people. But I want to tell you this morning, the great shepherd of our soul, the chief shepherd and bishop of our soul, who cares for you and your productivity and what you can do and what God can do through you is God himself. He's the great shepherd. And he says in verse 3, I, the Lord, to keep it. Now, how did this vine become the vineyard and the vines associated to it become so fruitful? God took care of it. Notice in verse 3, he says, I will water it every moment. He didn't water it once a day. He didn't assign drip irrigation. He said, I water it every moment. He gave it the dew of heaven and the rain of God. And I'm saying today, that's, that's the Christian life in perpetual revival when God is watering us every moment. I mean, what a wonderful thing to know in our fellowship. We can be in the presence of God and he's watering us with his word and he's watering us with his love and he's watering us with his fellowship and we are feeling drenched and saturated and soaked with the love of God. I mean, that's a wonderful image there and symbol to remind us today in this planting process, God produces in us that kind of fruit that he wants. He waters us. He keeps us. He watches us night and day. And then notice in verse 6, they blossom and bud and bear fruit. What kind of fruit? Unlike chapter 5 where it gave off wild grapes, notice it's abundant fruit. It's copious fruit. It's a bumper crop harvest. It's the best harvest ever. 
It's kind of like some of our church members who have a, a fig tree and they the fig tree and they say, boy, this year we got the best number of figs ever. Or they've got an apricot tree or peach tree or persimmon tree or an avocado tree. And they look out and say, man, we had good rains this past winter. And look at the fruit there. We've had, our, we've had a bumper crop. And what God is saying here is that when we're planted and when we're rooted, the shoots that he's looking for are the shoots that are budding and blossoming and spreading forth. And notice the description he gives. And he says it will fill the face of the world with fruit. Now in the context, God's love for Israel, and Israel will do this. Somewhere during the tribulation and throughout the millennium, it will fill the face of the earth with fruit. But I want you to think with me for a minute. Think with me right now in this church age. Think with me right now in this age of grace. If all of God's people, all of us, and churches like ours, if every one of God's people got their roots in deep and their shoots were healthy shoots, imagine with me, imagine with me, God's people being a perpetual revival, prayers being answered, and a wife abounding in the Word of God. Can you imagine with me, instead of protesting, we see preaching. Instead of people being in anger, we see people rejoicing in the Lord. You know what I'm saying here? What he's saying here is that God's goal, God's will for his people is that we fill the face of the earth with fruit. What kind of fruit? The fruit of the gospel, the fruit of mission, the fruit of church planting, the fruit of souls being saved there. And so we read verse 6. You know what that is? That's the optimum Christian life. The optimum Christian life. The ideal prototype of a Christian life. Fruit that fills the face of the earth. What is that? Did you know that we must be fruitful in every good work? Did you know there should be the fruit of righteousness? Did you know that we're to be walking the Spirit every day and asking the Lord to crucify this old flesh according to Galatians 2.20? And not talking about it, but walking in the Spirit so that we not fulfill the lust of the flesh? It's the reward of answered prayer. Jesus said in John 15, verses 7 and 8, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Here it is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. This fruit he's talking about is answered prayer. This fruit is souls being saved. It's fruit that remains. It is the work of missions, the face of the earth covered with it. I'm just saying this morning, what a great revival would be what a great thing would be pleasing to God if all of God's people were so blossoming and so rooted in Christ that we're bearing fruit that covers the face of the world. But notice in verses 3 to 5, we see something else. We see, the, we see the premium of the vineyard, the planting of the vineyard, the productivity of the vineyard. Notice, if you would, the protection of the vineyard. Growth, those wild shoots, they will cripple your tree and make it such that it won't give off a good harvest. It's the difference between a bumper crop and no crop. It's the difference from fruit and no fruit. 
Jesus Christ, our Savior, said in John chapter 15 of the importance of pruning. He calls it purging. Listen to what he said in John 15, verse 2. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, or if you would, he prunes it, or he cuts it away, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now notice verses 8 and 9. In this context, what is the sucker growth? The wild branch shoot. It weakens you. It debilitates you. Incapacitates you. It makes you so that you are unable to be the premium God wants you to be. And so the Lord has to cut away. Notice he uses a description of this in verse 7. He has smitten as he smote those that smote him. Now God, in his pruning process, uses chastening. He smites us. He gets us to where we wake up and realize, whoa, God's putting me through chastening. I'm feeling the heat. I'm feeling the heat and the pain. He has, has he smitten him as he smote him that smote him? Is he slain according to the slaughter of them that are slain by him? He uses the, the example of judging by winds. He says in verse 8, he stayeth his rough wind in the day of the, of the east wind. What is he saying there? Sometimes God has to put chasing into our lives to get our attention, to help us focus on our spiritual life. He puts chasing in our life to get us into the word of God, to get us on our knees. You hear me say this all the time. We must pray like we're in a trial or God sends us trials to teach us to pray. And we must understand that God uses chastening as a form of, of purging in our lives. But notice this. How does the purging happen? How do we have this purging? How does the pruning go about? Well, notice if you would with me, verse 9. By this, therefore, shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged. And this is all the fruit to take away his sin. When he maketh all the stones of the altar as chalk stones that are beaten in sunder, the groves and images shall not stand. What's he saying there? Well, he's us the principle that's found in Proverbs 28.13. The principle in Proverbs 28.13 is this. He shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth. Involves confession and forsaking. True cleansing, true pruning cannot happen unless there's confession and forsaking. He talks about here, the Lord working in us in verse 9, this is all the fruit to take away his sin. But the Lord uses a, a very interesting analogy. He talks about the chalk stones there in verse 9, when he maketh all the stones of the altars chalk stones. Specifically, God is addressing with, with Judah the sins of idolatry. King Ahaz was king. He brought in lots of idol worship from the, from the foreigners. And so they had idol worships, idols made of stones and of wood, majorly made out of stone. And God said, it's not enough that you say, I know I'm wrong. God said, you need to take those idols and you need to break them up and not just break them up, but you need to ground it into chalk stone. You need to ground it up until it's like dust. It's kind of like the story we read over there, I think it's in Judges chapter 6, about Gideon. Gideon got his calling from God. But God said before he was to lead, to lead the people into battle and to be victory, he had to go to his father's house and he had to tear down the idols in his father's house. He had to break down those altars and establish a holy sacrifice before God. You know what God was saying here in verse 9? 
He was telling the Jews, you need not to only just break down and admit, admit and confess that you have idols in your life. You also need to break up those idols. You need to stomp them up and make them into dust. You need to make very clear there's been a clear separation between you and idolatry that you're not going back to it. True confession of sin. True victory in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ involves confession and forsaking. You've got to take your sin and break it up and grind it into chalk stone. You've got to take that sin and hate it like God hates it. You've got to turn it into chalk stone and dust and wipe your feet off and say, God, I don't want anything to do with that sin anymore. Listen, until we do that, we'll never have the fruit God wants us to have. Man, you look at verses 2 to 11, God loves us, amen? God just told us the secret to Christian living. God just told you and I, if we're a premium vineyard, how to stay premium. God wants you to succeed. God wants you to be fruitful. God wants you to have answered prayer. God wants the word of Christ to dwell in you richly in all wisdom. God wants you to be a joyful Christian and a happy Christian and a rejoicing Christian. God wants you to be on victory side all the time. And he tells us right there in verses 2 to 11 how that can happen. We see this morning the Lord and the victory. We see this morning the Lord in his vineyard. And as we close, look at the last two verses, verses 12 and 13. We see the Lord in his veneration. Verses 12 and 13. He speaks about gathering his people back. Now, in the context of where they were at then, Isaiah had recurringly and repeatedly told them about how Egypt and Babylon and Assyria, in their case, it would be Assyria first and Babylon, how those three nations would be God's agents of chastening on Israel. You see, God's goal and, world and, 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 and will for Israel is that they would fill the face of the earth with fruit, but that wasn't happening. Their testimony for God had become stunted. And God was hitting right on the nose why their growth was stunted. And so he tells them, he tells them verses 12 and 13, he says, now I want to tell you something, that one more step here. He said, uh, let me find it here. He says, it shall come to pass in the day that the Lord shall beat off. He's telling them, he's talking about the, the, uh, the, the channel of the river into the stream of Egypt. The Tigris River is always symbolic of Assyria. The Euphrates River is always symbolic of Babylon. The Nile River is symbolic of Egypt. And God was saying there, you know, your time of chastening is up. I believe your heart is right. And he says, I'm going to stop. Literally, he said, I'm going to beat off. I'm going to stop the Assyrians and later on the Babylonians and previously the Egyptians. He says, from, from north to south, I'm going to stop it. You're not going to be under oppression anymore. And he says, I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to bring you home. He says in verse 12, I'm going to gather you one by one. And he calls them little children. Oh, ye children of Israel. That's just God giving terms of endearment. In verse 13, he says a trumpet will sound. A great trumpet shall sound. And when a trumpet is sounded, it's a call to assembly. When the trumpet sounds, it's saying it's time to come worship God. And the trumpet shall be blown, and they shall come. Notice this where they're at. 
They were such a low state in their, in their, in their spiritual life. They were ready to perish. They needed water. They needed food. They needed a visitation from God. They were expressing the repentance, the confession, forsaking of sin. And God said in verse 13, I'm going to blow the trumpet. And those that are ready to perish in the land of Assyria and the outcasts in the land of Egypt, I want you to notice God's people are dispersed everywhere. They're north and south and everywhere. He says they're going to come back in verse 13 to worship the Lord and the holy mount of Jerusalem. And watch this as we close. The Lord said the greatest exercise of the soul is the worship of him. Veneration is speaking about our worship and reverence of God. Brother and sister in Christ, the greatest activity, the greatest exercise of your soul, the greatest expression of worship, the highest ability you and I will exercise is the worship of God, is praising God, is lifting him up, is realizing worship, is giving God all of my soul, all of my heart, all of my mind is loving God with all my heart, soul, and mind. Worship is having a tear in my eye and saying, God, I love you. Worship is bending our knees before God and saying, God, I'm taking my watch off. I don't care what time it is. I'm going to stay here as long as I can to tell you I love you and to worship you. True worship has no time limits. True worship worships God till the tears flow. True worship takes the word of God and calls out to God and all the attributes of God and telling you how wonderful he is and how good he is. Worship of God is thanking God over and over again for his salvation and for his forgiveness and for his mercies over and over again. Worship of God never gets tired of telling God that you love him. The worship of God is telling God, Lord, you can't think of anything better but to be with him. It's like what we saw last week, that he's the desire of your soul. Listen, we thank God. Satan's defeat up. We, we need to worship God and say, God, thank you that Satan is a defeated foe. We need to thank God this morning that we are his vineyard and he will grow us and he cares for us and he protects us and he nurtures us and he won't let anybody harm us. We ought to worship for that. But we ought to worship him because he is worthy of all worship. You know, as we close this morning, I'm thinking about the fact in heaven, we'll spend our time worshiping God. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11 say this. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him. And given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, thank God for his name, amen. Every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ be Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brother, sister in Christ, friend here today, friend watching my live stream, we live in very troubling times. The bending of the knee has become a symbol of defiance and disrespect. People are bending knees today to send a message. I want to tell you this morning, 
I bend my knee to Jesus Christ. You're to bend your knee, but you're to bend your knee to Jesus Christ. A day's coming. Ideologies, principles, political nature, whatever it may be, someone's memory, we're not going to bend our knees for that. We're going to bend our knee to Jesus Christ. And every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. I urge you this morning, I urge you this morning, don't let the trends of the time twist your thinking to think that, well then, what am I supposed to do? You just keep bending your knee to Jesus Christ, amen? You just keep on showing your love to him and reflecting that you love Christ. And you just keep on worshiping the Lord. He said he's going to gather his people. He said he's going to blow the trumpet. He's going to gather them one by one. And the outcast of the land shall come and worship the Lord in the holy mount of Jerusalem. Oh, come let us worship. Oh, come let us adore the Lord. Oh, come let us highly exalt him. Oh, come let us lift up his name. Oh, come let us rejoice in his holiness. Oh, come and let us rejoice in the fact that he's the holy of all holies. He's the God of gods and he's the king of kings. That he's immortal, invisible, the only wise God to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. To him be glory in the church world without end throughout the, all the ages. Glory be to God. To God be the glory. Let's come and worship God. So this morning, God loves us. God loves us. We see the Lord in his victory. Satan's a defeated foe. We see the Lord in his vineyard. We get rooted. Shoots come out. And much fruit. We see the Lord in his veneration. He wants us to worship him. To worship him unashamedly. To worship him privately. To worship him publicly. To worship him with all our hearts. And worship is not worship. You don't come willing to give and to sacrifice and to shed a tear and to weep and thank God that he gives you breath to worship him. We must worship him. And I'm going to tell you today as we close, we ought to have a revival of worship in our hearts today. Revival of worshiping God, of exalting Him. He's gathered us from different locations to worship Him.